It is the best place to be. It's down the TV rabbit hole with Jim Sion and Harry Bartosiak. Harry Bartosiak is in Chicago. Harry, I can tell you right now, I'm in New Orleans, and it is a beautiful day, just a couple of clouds in the sky, and we got a cold front coming this weekend. So weather is great here in the Crescent City. How about by you? Pleasant good day to you. I'm glad to hear it is a good day there. We got the same weather here, and that will conclude our weather report. For- weather on the twos with Jim Sion. Time right now is 6.52 as it's a relatively cool morning here in southwest Florida and we'll get you your current temperatures in just a minute. But first, as we head into the weekend just for fun, a little weather poem for you. By late day today, it may well be raining. To hit 70 degrees, weekend temps will be straining. Floridians take heart. We want no complaining. Only 46 days until the start of spring training. Yeah. And in sports, the Cubs defeated uh, the... Uh, who the hell did they play? Well, Florida no, right Marlins now, the right wa- now, everyone knows you're making it up because the Cubs don't defeat anybody. Yeah. Well, they did win last night, I and know. the White Sox lost eight to two. But uh, <laughs> how did the New Orleans baseball team do? Oh, uh, well, let's see. The last time they played was three years ago before they left town, and I think they won seven to one. It was a three hitter, uh, if I remember Beautiful. correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So down the TV rabbit hole is the place we like to be because Harry and I have known each other since about 1985. And mm-hmm. right, right early in our in our life, we knew we would talk about television shows that we were watching on the local uh, independent stations, on the UHF stations, and we always wondered. We always, you know, I think maybe one of our first real conversations was about the two Darrens, and not that that's groundbreaking stuff. But I mean, we would have those conversations as eighteen and nineteen years old or year olds. And now, so many years later, right. we're going down the TV rabbit hole and talking about these shows. Oh, and I've got to tell you something real quick. Yeah. You sent me a microphone in the mail. It's a microphone that I sent you about a year ago. And I just want mm-hmm. you to know that yeah. it arrived safe and sound. It works perfectly. And, uh, and thank you for doing that. I greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you for letting me use it. And I'm glad this microphone deserves a world tour, or at least a nationwide tour, because it's super vintage, super uh, collectible. Uh, it is, of course, is it realistic? I think it actually has the Radio Shack brand on the logo, correct? I mean, this Yes, is, it does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but so you, this is going to be in the Museum of Broadcast History one day. Is one of the remaining Radio Shack items still being used in live broadcast. Radio Shack has a super half-price deal now on an 8-track car stereo tape player. Regularly $59.95, now just $29.95. You save $30 and get your choice of music wherever you drive. Put stereo 8-track players in two cars for the regular price of one. Or buy one and have enough money left over for car speakers and your first tape. Get on the road to savings now with this sale-priced realistic 8-track car stereo tape player. Only at Radio Shack. Well, I'll tell you the story behind that mic very quickly. My banjo player sold it to me. And my banjo player is, he's going to be 89 now, I think. 88 or 89 on his next birthday. And this was about 20 years ago. And he really thought that, you know, Radio Shack was the only place to go for anything. Cords, cables, adapters. So he told me. He said, Jimmy, he says, I can get you a sure microphone for $50. And I said, well, sure, that's a good name. He said, yeah, it's a real good one. It's a black microphone. And I said, okay, Pat, go ahead and get it. So he goes and he buys it, brings it back. Well, it is a sure microphone, but they put the Radio Shack label on the outside of it. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay, so that's right. This reminds me of there was a kid in high school who had a White Sox jersey, but on the back of it, it had a Denny's logo. Oh, no. So it's like that kind of spoils the whole thing. It's not a real jersey. That poor kid. Yeah. I feel bad for him. Although, you know what? He probably didn't care. It was on the back. He couldn't see it. To him, he Now was you'd wear that in an ironic sense. It would be awesome to have such a jersey. I'd wear that all over town oh, if I yeah, had Yeah, nowadays, now nowadays, could, nowadays yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. But I did want to tell you that uh, when I got the microphone, at first I was a little bit mad, and then I said, boy, this Harry, he really is a comedic genius. And I got a huge laugh Uh-oh. out of what you did. So so thank you so much what for did the I comedy. Do? Well, we've only known each other for, as I mentioned, about 30 years now, more than that. And yet you did the hilarious bit to go ahead and address the package and misspell my last name. That's funny. Oh, Ah, uh, contraire. 
I must blame it on the people that work at the UPS uh, office. They're fine young gentlemen, as Lou Boudreau would say. But uh, any typos uh, are not my responsibility. When, those are entered into the computer by professionals. Oh, okay. So you can blame it on them. All right. Well, I still got a laugh out of it anyway, and the microphone's working well. So, all right. Let's go down the TV rabbit hole because we have discussed. We never have pre-production meetings. We talk for about thirty seconds. Never before we roll tape. But today we've decided. No curveballs, no bells, no whistles, no sparklers. We're just going to do nuts and bolts down the TV rabbit hole, and I'm going to allow you to pick the first show and kick it off from Chicago. Okay. Hey, uh, gee, uh, hi, Bert. How are you? I'm fine, Ernie. I'm listening to a podcast. Hey, uh, well, I'd rather play with my rubber ducky, but what's the name of it? Hey, so we're going to talk about Sesame Street. Excellent, because I have read a great book on Sesame Street about how the whole thing got produced originally, so I'm going to let you go and interject whenever I get a chance. So I've got some some details on Sesame Street, uh, and so I'll be interested to see how accurate my facts are. But this, I mean, this is, uh, you know, like one of the granddaddies of of all of the modern-day kids' shows, okay? I'm not talking about Captain Kangaroo or... Uh, soupy sales or anything like that, but as far as hitting into the 70s, namely, uh, specifically, I should say, premiering on November 10th of 1969, still running to this day, Sesame Street was originally a production of the Children's Television Workshop and continued under that uh, production company until 2000, created by a lady named Joan Gans Cooney and somebody named Lloyd Morissette. You probably got info on this. I won't get into them too much, but uh, it was aired for years and years and years on PBS. And you and me and a lot of other people of a certain age and even kids nowadays, my kids who are now teenagers, remember growing up watching Sesame Street, at least some. And I watched it a ton. And one thing I remember about Sesame Street is compared to some of the other shows, first of all, it was always on uh, the PBS station here, Channel 11 in Chicago. It was on next door to or before or after two other shows. The Electric Company, remember that one? It had Morgan Freeman and Rita Moreno was in it. Hey, you guys! And they would do like, just have weird skits, like they'd have these movers that, the gang that couldn't shoot straight, they didn't know how to get a, they put the horizontal bed through the vertical door frame and they couldn't figure out how to get in. Uh, Do you remember the Electric Company at all? Oh, without a doubt, sure. And of course, the third show that you're going to mention is another classic. What do you think it is? Well, of course, it would be Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh, of course, but I wasn't thinking of that one. Oh! <laughs> yes, it was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So there's a fourth show, Ooh. and that is, this one was weird, Zoom. And it was uh, a bunch of kids. It was done out of Boston, and they all wore these like rugby-looking striped T-shirts, yeah. jeans, and they never had shoes or socks on. And for some reason... <laughs> You know how like some people have a foot fetish out there? I'm kind of the opposite of that. I, it disturbs me. I don't like to see people walking around barefoot unless you're on the beach or something appropriate. Then I don't even notice. But even at a young age, I'm like, why don't those kids put their shoes on? You know, th- there was no point in that except to distract the viewer. But anyway, that's not why you call Well, no, it. but you know, We're it, talking it, I, about- I, you mentioned Zoom, and, uh, and I'm just in my head, I'm going backwards. It seems to me, and just knowing a little bit about television, it seems to me that Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood... The demographic was preschool kids. Sesame Street was like kindergartners. Electric Company would have been like first, second, maybe even third graders. And then Zoom was like almost pre-teens. And a lot of times they'd show that in the afternoon or the evening. Now, am I correct on that? I think you're right. I remember watching like some of these shows. I think they repeated some of them, too, if I remember correctly. Because I remember watching them in the day, and I remember them like while my mom is making dinner. I can smell the see the steam coming up on the macaroni and cheese boiling water and stuff like that. We're watching Zoom. Wow, you have so a great right. memory. I, you even remember what your mom was making. It wasn't spaghetti. No, it wasn't spaghetti. Macaroni and cheese. That's what it was. <laughs> Jim Henson was the creator of the Muppets, and he did the voices for a bunch of them. Now, a bunch of the other voices and another puppeteer was a guy named Frank Oz. Are you familiar with him? Frank, yeah, Frank Oz, balding guy with a mustache. And he, he, he didn't, yes. he, it, did he have, he had a real weird voice, if I remember correctly. He had a real, he had a weird voice like that this. And he was in Blues Brothers. Remember when um, Jake is getting let out of jo- uh, Joliet prison and um, yes. he's checking out and he's getting his stuff back and Frank Oz is behind the counter. One Timex digital watch broken. 
One unused prophylactic. One soiled. Him and Henson would do the different voices for the Muppets on Sesame Street. So I'm going to give you a quiz, see how you do. All right. Based on, I'm going to tell you the character, and you tell me whether it was Jim Henson doing it or Frank Ooh. Oz. Are you sufficiently refreshed on Frank Oz and his weird voice that you could take a shot Yes, I, I think I could. I wouldn't put money on it, but let's go. Okay. Well, gee, uh, Ernie would be the first one. That would have to be, that's Frank Oz. Wrong. That's uh, Jim Damn. Henson. Okay, keep going. Right. And the next one is Grover. Oh, God. All right, that's Frank Oz. Frank Oz, correct. Okay. Cookies, I want cookies. Cookie Monster. Oh, I'm going to say that's Henson. Me like cookie. That was Frank Oz. Hmm. Uh, I can't do this impression, but Rolf the dog. Oh, God, I remember Rolf the dog. Yeah, that's Henson, right? Henson, yeah. correct. The Swedish chef. Oh, God. Mm. Frank Oz. That Damn. was Henson. Oh, Kermy, you're so cute and beautiful, Miss Piggy. Oh, that's got to be Frank Oz. Correct, Frank Oz. And Kermit the Frog here. Yeah, that's got to be Frank Oz, too. That's Tim Henson. Boy, I tell you, they're both really good because I'm I'm confused. Okay, a couple more. Elmo, who came on later. You mean the game up it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Tickle Me Elmo, the red one. I'm going to say Henson. Right. The one that you had to sell at Kmart to people at yeah. Christmas oh, time. God. Do you still have the Tickle Me Elmo? Oh, God. They, every year they would they would somehow manage to find, whether it was a Cabbage Patch or a Tickle Me Elmo or mm. uh, what was that one? Something Simon. No, not Simon. Uh, Teddy Ruxpin. Remember that one? I remember. Yeah. I'll tell you, the, the closest I ever came to being uh, physically assaulted by a gang of women <laughs> was when I had to push out the double-decker cart full of Cabbage Patch kids near Christmas time from the stock room. And you wouldn't believe how they swarmed me. And, you know, I I nearly lost my life that that way, but uh, I'll never forget that moment. I seem to uh, remember that I was working that day, and I know you're exaggerating for the point of comedy, but I remember that there was actually, you were actually concerned. You're like, well, what do I do? And so you pushed it out, and I do remember many people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It was. It was. There they, there they are. Get him. It was and the double decker cart me. that was that blue color, <laughs> right? It was the blue one. Yeah. Yep. Kind of greenish blue, like you see in a school or something yes. like that for <laughs> AV equipment. Yeah, or a prison. Okay. Now, neither. Neither did the voice. It was some other. Oh, guy. What, and same with. Yeah. Bastard. Same with yeah. a guy named Carol Swinney did both Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch, and. As a matter of fact, there's a picture, I can, I'll can. i text it to you after the show, of Carol Swinney, who was like 25 when he started this. He just died recently in his 80s. He's like hunched behind Oscar the Grouch. and hold, You see him in his regular clothes, and he's holding up his hand. He's got Oscar on one hand, and on his legs, he's got Big Bird's feet. So he must have been running around you know, switching characters. Oh, wow. Because the whole thing about... Yeah, so you did. You didn't do that well, but neither do I on most of these quizzes, and that's okay. It's just for the exercise. Sesame Street, as you know, featured live action sketch comedy, animation, and puppetry through Henson's puppets. A few things, real quick, before we get into Henson. So the uh, producer Joan Gascuni uh, and, and her colleagues wanted to make this an educational show, so they did a lot of research and talked to a lot of educators. both institutions and individuals and try to come up with a curriculum to teach kids uh you know they had certain lessons of the day and sometimes it was counting as we know one two three four yeah or sometimes it was you know being nice to people things like that um but anyway, uh, they put a lot of work into it in terms of the curriculum. The cast and crew, a lot of these people that were on there, you know, they had these people. You didn't know who they were as actors. Like there was Gordon, the African-American guy. There was uh, 
uh, Susan. There was Mr. Hooper yeah. ran the store. There was, uh, oh my God, there's other guys. I'm forgetting their names. Nobody famous. And I guess I read that kind of a couple of them got hired and then they just hired friends of the cast and crew because they, they didn't care that much about whether you're famous. They wanted the show to have an authentic edge and they would have toward that end. They would have kids on there, like groups of kids that you know, live, but they never picked actor kids. It wasn't like, get us Jerry Mathers or Adam, Adam Rich or anything. Uh, they wanted it to, to just be freewheeling and fresh, give it kind of a fresh vibe. And so they had kids. Even when the kids acted up, they worked that into the script. Um, get out of here, you damn kid. <laughs> no, no pay for you today. No, I, I do remember that but, the kids, you could tell they weren't actors because sometimes they just sit there like bumps on a log. And then sometimes one kid would like be going off on his own. He'd be pointing at something. You know, he'd be pointing at the boom mic or at the camera. So you're exactly right. You could tell they weren't professionals. I think that added to the authenticity of the show. I think so. I never thought about it, but when you think about it, it did seem to have kind of a rougher, even though it was for kindergartners, it had a more authentic, I want to say rougher edge. I'm not, that maybe is not the right word, but you know, it was a little more real life-ish than the other shows. Little, It was produced, but yeah, it seemed to almost be like, like they were doing it live and it was kind of loose and you know not that fancy yeah like a little more rougher rough around the edges i now, guess you would say i may be stealing your thunder on this one and if i am stop me go ahead but have you no please have you seen that video of the muppet counting with the kid he's a real cute like four or five year old african-american kid and they found that kid and they actually have morphed the video no, I didn't see that. I, that would be cool. Okay. You should post that on the website. Yeah. It, it, like he does it as an adult, it's, too? It's so well done. And the guy is like a major in the Air Force. Do you suppose we could count together? Yeah. Okay. I'll go first, and you go second, okay? Okay. I'll, I'll do the first one, and then you... Then you I and, go first. Oh, you, you want to go, go first? Second. Okay, you go first. One, two, two three... three. Four, Four, five, five, six, six seven, seven, eight, eight nine, nine, ten, ten eleven, eleven, twelve, twelve, thirteen, thirteen, fifteen, 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 Sixteen. Oh, God, that's Sixteen. John, John, is that you all grown up? It sure is, Harry. Oh, great to see. I guess they don't call you John John anymore, huh? No, Harry, they don't. Now they call me John Williams. And what's this you got on, John? Oh, now I'm in the Air Force. Whoa. And I've been in for about a year and a half. Maybe for old time's sake we could just do a little counting? Sure we from, can. From 16, huh? Okay. But I'll go first. You go second. Right. Okay. 16. 17. 18. 19 20 20 That is cool. Now was it the count that was sitting with him or just some other random No, this Muppet? was really early Sesame Street like the first year. It was one of those generic Muppets that just looked like a big mop. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, they had those or they had they, there was all kinds of Muppets that you I know they all had names but you didn't know who they were. So you know, there was the stars like Bert and Ernie. Right. The guys we the guys we the list we ran down. A couple of them I mentioned weren't even on Sesame Street. I'm not so sure Rolf the dog was. I don't know what the crossover was, but but yeah, there was a bunch of random. They could make a Muppet real quick. I'm sure. Here, take this head, put a right. red ball on his nose. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, I seem to remember even as there. a kid going, "Wow, that that Muppet looks a little like Guy Smiley with a different uh, you know <laughs> different hairpiece or a hat or something." You know, 
I'm going to keep this kind of tight because most, I'm not going to, you know, you know me, I don't talk a lot about individual episodes. Hey, remember that time that so-and-so did this? I like the backstories. Now, Carol Spinney, who I talked about that did Oscar the Grouch and Big Bird, he was actually 36 uh, when he started. But these puppeteers, I mean, they really did that. They held their hand, Hanson and Frank Oz and Carol Spinney and others, you know, they were really working these puppets and they had boom mics or regular mics down low in, you know, in their they're talking. Uh, they're not recording it later, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, so it was pretty amazing stuff. Now, Jim Henson had been, who created the Muppets, owned already by the point that the show started trademarks to the Muppets. Good for him. And I guess he didn't want to do the show or put them, he didn't want to market the Muppets, basically. He had other plans or whatever. But then he agreed uh, to do it when Children's Television Workshop uh, said that, hey, we will take the profits from anything that the any profits that the Muppets generate, not from the show, but outside the show, right. books, computer games, right. that kind of stuff, and we'll we'll put it towards charities or efforts or outreaches that that you uh, specify or condone or that we agree on. And so he did that, um, and he was very socially active. I mean, this was a pretty socially. Um, had a social agenda, this show. I don't think it was necessarily to push any kind of liberal agenda necessarily, but they definitely had aspects that where there was pushback. Like, it was very diverse. They had all kinds of different nationalities, black, white, Hispanic. And there was even, in Mississippi, in the early 70s, said they didn't want to show it because they didn't believe that it was appropriate in Mississippi at that time to show such diverse interaction of children well i don't know i don't know about you but i think the first black kids i ever saw were on sesame street as a matter of fact i'm certain of it i I think that's right i think it was maybe at least right around the same time as rodney allen rippy uh on the he was also wasn't he on the devilwood underwood commercial no he was on jack in the box mason reese did devil devil (laughs) devil one underwood or devil what was it uh underwood devil whatever yeah and rodney allen rippy (laughs) did jack in the box get it straight hi i'm rodney allen rippy as a lot of things can eat at Jack in the Box. This is a Jack steak sandwich, and these are pretty delicious too. And this is a taco. The other morning I had a talk with Mom. Lunches were getting pretty boring, so I told her about I'll do a chicken spread. Now look what she does with our sandwiches: cranberry sauce and lettuce on chicken spread, chunky peanut butter and applesauce on this one. Even made a nifty stuffed tomato salad, like I told her. Mom, you plus underwear is like having a board. <laughs> so, I'll tell you what. Jim Henson, you know, brought those Muppets, and that was, this show was a smash hit. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was very hugely rated, but it did begin to go down in ratings in the 1990s, you know, when times changed. Uh, they did get some pushback from time to time on the edge, from all kinds of different groups, not just because of any race thing or anything like that, but educational groups. You know education, man. You talk about politics and how people are polarized. It's always been that way in education, what people think should be taught to kids or shouldn't be taught to kids and how it should be taught to kids. So they were always getting hammered left and right, you know, missiles being fired at them. But uh, overall, I haven't heard too many people that said that, Kids got screwed up from watching Sesame Street. Jim Henson. Oh, let's talk about Frank Oz, his friend. So Frank Oz uh, was a friend of Henson's, and he was working. Um, I think he was. What was he? He was I'm not working at a carnival, but he was working. I forget. He he did puppeteering, but he was like running a movie theater or something. He didn't want anything really to do with puppets. That wasn't his craft. But somehow he got involved in doing it, and then he knew Henson. And one thing led to another, and before you know it, he's the voice not only of all those Muppets, but did you know that he was the voice of Yoda in Star Wars? That makes sense. It sounds like Frank Oz, so yes. Yeah, and then he became a director. He directed The Dark Crystal in 1982, which had Muppets kind of characters in there. And then, of course, Muppets Take Manhattan, Little Shop of Horrors, Dirty Routin' Scoundrels. How about this? What about Bob? Remember that movie? Oh, my dad loved that movie. Yeah, it was pretty good. In and Out, Death and a Funeral, and and a few other things. Um, And as I said, he also appeared in Blues Brothers. But get this. Blues Brothers was directed by a guy named John Landis, one of the big directors. You hear about George Lucas. Landis is lesser, but he did a lot of big 
films. Oh, sure. And so he must have been, he and Oz must have been good friends because Oz appeared, like I said, in Blues Brothers as the prison storeroom keeper. And then he appeared in a bunch of other John Landis movies, including Trading Places, um, American Werewolf in London, Spies Like Us, Innocent Blood, and of course the world classic considered to be second best to uh, citizen kane movie of all time blues brothers 2000 um, <laughs> jim henson um died in 1990 you remember that right it was kind of a surprise yes he, and he did like a tonight show i think uh, like six months beforehand was, well it it was sooner than that. I think it was. It was just a few weeks or oh, days wow. even before he and he did Arsenio Hall. And what had happened? He was a workaholic. Um, he had been separated from his wife. I don't know the reasons. Maybe it had something to do with working too much. But his kids, I think they liked him and everything like that. But it didn't see the family as much. You know, classic scenario. So, and what happened was. He worked all the time, and he was tired, so he thought he was just feeling sick when he was on Arsenio Hall, had a sore throat. Turns out he had a bacterial infection and was dead in a matter of days oh, after he went wow. to the hospital. Hours, even, after going to the hospital. Frank Oz later said that he had been negotiating a deal with Disney, I forget what it was for, one of the upcoming movie or something, and it was so stressful to him that he believes that's what drove his health down and killed him was the stress you know what though i'll tell you this and i have great respect for him and i've read a lot about him but every time that i'd see him on tv he never looked healthy to me no no he really didn't he was a big tall drink of water he had the he had he was like had the modern day he was a he had the kind of beard that a lot of guys have nowadays back when nobody had those right uh and just looked like he might be a change i don't know if he smoked at all but you're right he did not look the picture of health certainly not athletic health not that you have to be athletic but but no yeah. he he you, you you summed it up perfectly he always looked like a guy to me that smoked two or three packs of cigarettes a day but that's right you know just my gut reaction i have no idea whether that's true or not i'll put it in the corrections but how old was he when he died he couldn't have been what 60 if that i have to look that you know i always know this and for some reason i don't um that's all right i'll put it in the corrections i'm gonna guess right now 60 what's your I, guess i'm gonna guess he was 57 at the moment. All right, okay. Well, and I will award the prize in the correction. So it's one more reason for everyone What's to the listen prize? to the dollar ninety-eight. Like on uh, uh, no, no, we no, prize. Five. <laughs> you take the cake. You take the cake. You get the crown. And a dollar ninety-eight. Who's that? Yeah, your rip, your rip Taylor is much better than mine. <laughs> I can only do one or two lines. So, well, there's so much to say about Sesame Street. I like to do it in streamlined fashion because I know you have a ton of information. So please fill in some of the gaps for me. What did I leave out? Or did I do a, at least an accurate job of assessing the big picture of Sesame Street? You did excellent. I will say that I know that Jim Henson, when he had the Muppets, they actually started, they go back to the Ed Sullivan show, if you remember that. I don't, but I had a feeling he had those things around for quite a while. And then Jim Henson cut a deal with Dean Martin. They were on the Dean Martin show for one season, but Dean didn't like it. He didn't like talking. He called them dummies. I don't want to talk to the dummies. So <laughs> that's what he said. <laughs> so what do you so think Henson, this is uh, Lester? And what what was the name of the guy? The, Willie Tyler and Lester. Who's the dummy no. here? Who's the dummy? Who's the dummy now? Oh. I remember him saying that. Yeah, Willie Tyler and Lester, or of course Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen. Well, I wonder if Jim Henson was as crazy as Sherry Lewis, who, when she flew, always insisted on a separate seat for Lamb Chop, which was just a sock with eyes. Oh, yeah. There's only one thing more annoying than Lamb Chop, and that's um, Waylon Flowers' puppet, oh. Madam. Oh, she looked like Lady God. Elaine Fairchild ripoff. Uh, and he didn't even... <laughs> I think he moved his mouth, didn't he? Or no? Wasn't he, wasn't he with the ones that didn't even bother to... Uh, try to do the ventriloquist thing. I think you're mind. right. No, I, in Hollywood <laughs> Squares. That's where, I remember him yeah. in Hollywood Squares, and I remember saying, why? why? I mean, yeah. is, is Jimmy Walker unavailable? Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm That's sure what makes you realize it must not be that hard. I might want to move to Hollywood right now. It couldn't. If these people are making it, I got to be a shoe in. It, it, it was a different time. 
It, yeah. But I agree 100%. You've got 10 times the talent of a Willie Tyler or a Lester. I was talking about you, not me. But anyway, oh. th- same thing goes. When you see the lowest common denominator talent that somehow is getting work, uh, now it's a little different because it's so many everything's on streaming and stuff. But the low-budget shows that we watched, if we lived in the area, I'm guaranteeing we could have been on multiple shows. Probably, That's true. You know, at least extra on Fantasy Island, waving at the plane coming in or something like that. You well, know? see, no, you, you probably could because you're tall and pretty good looking. Me, I would have had yeah. to have been one of the guys working in the kitchen, you know, in the background <laughs> with my back no. to the camera. <laughs> we could have been on Return to Mayberry working in Wally's filling station, you know, because they, they expanded by that point. Added oh, that's true. Well, no, yeah. but then it was the G&G Garage. Oh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, let me let me fill in the blanks real quick, Muppets. Uh, uh, w- oh well, the children's television workshop, as you mentioned, uh, was kind of a conglomeration. They had a bunch of melding of the minds, but the reason it got off the ground is they got a one million dollar grant in either '68 or '69 uh-huh. from the government to put the show on the air. And back then, a million dollars was a that, lot of money. That was a lot, and that allowed them to go to guys like Henson. And I'm sure they went to the professor of education at whatever university, and they did. They talked with a lot of real smart people. They got a good curriculum, but they realized at some point, they said, listen, in the inner city, this show is going to be used as a babysitter for a lot of one-parent households. And when they came to that realization, that's when they, they really, that's when it all kind of turned into the soup that it became they went with a two-minute animation and then three minutes of grover and then a song and then a counting thing and when they kind of realized that said okay we've got to do these small skits we've got to bang 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 it's got to be educational then funny then some music then back to education okay then bert and ernie that'll be the comedy once they realized the formula they said well this is going to be easy for us because they would produce you know 10 Burt Nerdies and 10 Grovers and 10 Guy Smileys, and they just put them all together, and that's when they realized, hey, this thing's going to be good. All right, I've got a show for you from 76 to 79. It was about two and a half seasons, but to get you into this show, let me talk about us just for a minute. Now, you know I'm a Dixieland or a New Orleans jazz musician right now with the Asunto Duke's Dixieland Tribute. Extraordinaire. I would say a musician extraordinaire, but that, I'm, you know, I'm getting better. I'm, I'm getting yeah. better. You know, our band is our band is really hitting on all cylinders. Yeah. But before I really got into New Orleans jazz, my dad had an extensive record collection that included Johnny Cash and Chet Atkins, and even you know like Tennessee Ernie Ford. And I know that you, when you were in high school, you actually had your own punk rock band, and you knew the alternative music very well. So yes, so- I had. A, I was in. The Sectors, and then Chemical Feast. Okay, see, there you go. So I think when you look at us as musicians, because you're a fine musician too, you play guitar, but if you look at us historically, I think that I could honestly say that I'm a little bit country. Oh, and no. you're... <laughs> <laughs> you're oh, a little my bit God. <laughs> you... Now, <laughs> go ahead. You sob! I was going to do Sonny and Cher. What the hell? Sonny and Cher. No. So we're talking about, oh, my God. Now, this is an iconic show for that time. And I'll let you say what it is, but I know what you're talking about. No, tell everybody. What are are we watching? Well, you're, of course, talking about Donnie and Marie, right? I mean, and for those of you listening that weren't around or tuned in at that time, this was about one of the biggest variety shows for a for like a year anyway was the biggest thing in variety. What what are they going to do on Donnie and Marie? And that little bit country, little bit rock and roll every week was a routine that everybody knew. I mean, this brings back the memories. I'm guessing it's not. Look at it again. Did you watch any of it? I don't think it's that good of a show. I think these were corny routines, but they were fun, good, wholesome, all American. Blah 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 blah. But it was huge. I think it was an offshoot 
of the Osmonds, that the Osmonds had their own show before. I'm sure you'll tell me if I'm wrong. But I remember the Osmonds. It was like the ja- the white Jackson 5, right, where they're all dressed in the same kind of jumpsuits, every different colors, a lot of times red, white, and blue. They have bad mustaches and sideburns, some of them, except for little Jimmy, who's tiny, and Donnie, who's you know clean-shaven still to this day. Perms here and there. Uh, wide collars, you know, bell bottoms, white shoes, and then of course they trot out Marie, uh, you know, and it, it, to me it was just like the Jacksons except different. It's like the black and the white, you know, the hip and the not hip. And sometimes the Osmonds would do kind of like Jackson Five type songs. Your memory is better than my <laughs> research because you, <laughs> the, you're right. The Osmonds they they actually started as a barber shop quartet. In Utah, Ogden, Utah. Yeah. And as you remember, I think they were on the Andy Williams show. That was their That's big right. break in the yeah. 60s. Yeah. Weeks ago, a 40 year old act made his debut on our show. I say 40 years because uh, that's the total of the combined ages of the four Osmond brothers. These uh, four young fellows whose ages are 13, 11, 9, and 7. I think that adds up to uh, 40. I'm not too good on numbers, but I do know a great act when I see one. And from your letters and your phone calls, you do too. So here they are once again, ladies and gentlemen, the Osmond Brothers. Oh, the Charleston really had its day. (laughs) So they were on. Andy Williams in the 60s. Then Donnie gets old enough, and he kind of joins the act, and Marie wasn't there yet. Then they get to the early 70s, and that's when <laughs> that's when they started to take control of their music, and they became more rock and roll. And <laughs> Do you have any Osmond albums, along with no. the Deep Purple and uh, Motorhead? <laughs> there is an Osmond <laughs> tune that I was going to have you Google, but I'll just tell everyone. It's a tune called Crazy Horses, Okay. And if we could, I'd play the whole thing for you. But it was from 1972, and it's when they were starting to become, you know, a harder-edged band. They've got the, the band, and they've got, like, a, a brass section behind them. And it's really a pretty cool song. But it's these, like you say, kind of white-bred Jackson 5 knockoffs from Ogden, Utah, in the Elvis-type jumpsuits, playing guitars and basses, and Donnie is actually playing, like, some sort of a synthesizer. Yeah. And it's totally worth a Google because they're up there and they're like trying to dance, but they're white guys and then they're clapping and then they're doing kicks. Oh my God. And, yeah. And it's called what? I'm going to Google it. Crazy what? Horses. Crazy Horses. I'm going to watch yeah. that. I want you to watch. I'll take you even a step further maybe. Okay. Okay. Uh, Google Superstition with Cher and the Osmonds. Y- you've never seen a cheesier white person dance group they're singing Superstition by Stevie Wonder, clapping, moving. The moving around is just like the, it's like on the Seinfeld when they're purposely trying to do bad dancing or whatever. Right. It's like, it's like that, except uh, it's like unhip white person to the nth degree. And even Cher, who I, I love, big fan. Uh, but you got to watch that. You got to. I saw okay. it on Twitter last night, Super 70 Sports. So you can go on Twitter and go into Super 70 Sports. He posted it. Well, the Osmonds, were, and obviously, we're, we're doing this by memory, and when we Google it, it all kind of comes back in waves. And they were good singers, and they weren't bad musicians, and they did have some hits. As a matter of fact, and you hit the nail on the head just a couple of minutes ago, 1970, their first hit was a tune called One Bad Apple. Remember that one? One bad apple, don't spoil the... Ho- hey, wait a minute, that's the Jacksons. Nope, it was originally supposed to be done by the Jacksons. But they gave it to the Osmonds, whether it was the producers or the Jacksons. But yes, the Jacksons gave it to the Osmonds, and that was their big hit. Wow. Yeah. I had that 45, so it must have been the Osmonds I was playing. Maybe I do have some Osmonds records then. Well, in 1972, as I said, they kind of transitioned. They were taking uh, control of their uh, own music. And then right about that same time period, they had the Saturday morning cartoon show, which I know you remember. Yes, I do. I thought that came later, but that that came that is that the same time the Osmonds were on with their live action show. I think it was. I think it was about 1970 because one bad apple was the theme 
to the cartoon. So okay. let's say 70, 71, 72. Okay, so the Osmonds are doing their thing. Now, Donnie's getting older. He becomes a teen heartthrob. He does that, um, that tune, Puppy Love, which I think was originally done by who? Pat Boone. And they call it Puppy Love. Something like that, right? Exactly right. Yeah. So here we are, 1976. Just before that, Marie Osmond, at like 14 years of age, has a big hit with the tune Paper Roses. Paper Roses. It's all coming back to me now, brother. I remember kids playing this on the way to grade school. Exactly right. How so are they night- playing it on the way to... Don't ask me. I'm rolling. Yeah. Okay. Well, they probably <laughs> had... It, it. it must have been on 8-track if they were if they were playing it, you yeah. know... <laughs> Radio Shack has a super half-price deal now on an 8-track car stereo tape player. Regularly $59.95, now just $29.95. So 1976, the perfect time. I think Donnie was 18, Marie was 16, or 17 and 15, you know, in that ballpark. So they debut the show, and just like you said, huge hit for like a year. Produced by those fuckers, Sid and Marty Croft. I don't even know why I'm mentioning their name, because everything (laughs) they did was shit, but... This was probably their biggest hit. Really? Did they do the interaction with any of their puppets during the show? No, thank God. They might have done it once or twice, but it wasn't a regular feature. But you remember how they started those shows early in the run? No, I don't. Bob Mackey was the costumer, if that's the Mm -hmm. right word. Bob Mackey, the famous, you know, he did everyone. He did Carol Burnett for 11 years. He would do Liza Minnelli and every show on Broadway. And he did all the the outfits for Marie. And I guess Donnie, too. He probably did everything. But they would start the show with the music, and then all of a sudden they'd come out, and they wouldn't be wearing shoes. They'd be wearing something different. Huh. Because they'd come out onto the rink. Oh, my God. I don't remember that at all. You're telling me they skated every show? Well, not every show, but a lot of the shows at the beginning would start with, like, an ice skating number, and then Donnie and Marie would come out. They weren't bad skaters, but they would do the opening segment on the ice skates. That was a big part of the early shows. Mm. That seems lame, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, what again, are we going to do for the opening? Uh, I don't know. Put them on, uh, put them on ice. That'll... that'll Yeah, it's boring the way it is. Put them on ice. That'll spice it up. You said the word lame. And when you go back and watch, first of all, the outfits obviously are extremely dated. And Donnie and Marie, you know, they look good. Although Donnie always seemed like a caricature to me because he, you know, had that big smile and he was always smiling. Marie, of course, was gorgeous, cute as a button. But after about the first season, that's when things started to change because... And I don't know if it was first season, second season, but as it went on, there were a lot of things that happened that kind of made the show less popular. What happened? Did she get like a big boil on the side of her face or something or gain 100 pounds? Or or, uh, did he uh, get arrested for a DUI? What happened? No, you're in the ballpark, though. They actually told the producers, told Marie that, oh, you're too fat. You need to lose weight. So she You never say that to a woman. Well, in TV, it seems like they always say that, sadly. They say that, yeah. When I worked, even when I worked in TV news, every girl in the newsroom was on some sort of diet pill. Oh, God. Whether it was, you know, prescribed by a doctor or whether they would get it on the black market. I mean, Remember everyone. they had that diet pill that was a candy? It was, it was regrettably called AIDS? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I was overweight and looked terrible, but AIDS helped me lose 46 pounds. The AIDS diet plan helped me lose 28 pounds. AIDS helps control your appetite so you lose weight. Why take diet pills when you can enjoy AIDS? Uh, I think we need to change the name, guys. <laughs> oh, I, I don't even think they changed the name. I, I think they said, just shut the factory down. <laughs> shut it down. Yeah. And we have nothing to do with this, okay? They ran to man- the hills. Yeah, let's manufacture <laughs> shampoo or something. Let's move on. <laughs> So as the season goes on, from like season one to season two, first of all, Marie has an eating disorder. She's having a few psychological problems. And then the mm-hmm. big thing that happened that really made the show kind of kind of lose its luster ratings-wise was the fact that Donnie got married. I'm sure oh, you don't no. remember that. But for I the don't. And, and they were so popular. They actually, for the entire run of the show, Donnie and Marie had their own Tiger Beat magazine. Yeah. 
Oh, now, you Tiger remember, Beat. Yeah, Tiger Beat would have like, you know, they would feature Donnie Most and Anson Williams and... and let's Garrett. See, Valerie Bertinelli. Right. You know, whoever the teen stars. But Donnie Willie and Marie Ames. had their own magazine that would be published once a month. Now, they would feature Donnie and Marie, and then they'd also include some of the other Osmonds. But it was mm -hmm. their own magazine. That shows how popular they were. But then Donnie gets married, and the girls start leaving the show. And then, of course, you know, 1978-79. The world is changing. Disco's coming in. Donnie and Marie kind of go disco for a little bit. But, mm -hmm. you know, we're going from... The, the years of the variety show to the years of shows like Miami Vice. The, the 70s and 80s are almost completely different when you think about them, fashion-wise, culture-wise, music-wise. And Donnie and Marie just kind of ran their course, unfortunately. Yeah. But like you said, for the first, especially that first six months, it was, I don't know if it was much watch, a must-watch TV, but it was Definitely very talked about TV, especially for young people. It was huge. It was like, that was right in the sweet spot of when we're watching Six Million Dollar Man, Charlie's Angels. I remember, was it on ABC? Yep, ABC Friday nights. Ah, that's right. a key too, Friday nights, because we aren't going anywhere on a Friday night. We, we don't we have a, going you know. Nowhere. Yeah. You're staying home. Uh, hey, Donnie Marie, let's watch. <laughs> yeah. Who did he get in a wrestling match with? Uh, okay, wait, was... well, we'll get to that in a second. I'm trying to go okay. chronologically. Okay. I have I have a story for you that not many people know, and I'm not sure if it's completely true, but mm -hmm. right as the TV show was kind of wrapping up, Donnie and Marie made a fatal decision. They were oh. asked to do a movie, and they ended up doing a movie calling go, uh, called Going Coconuts. Do you remember that at all? I remember vaguely, yes. Okay. Uh, Big Bomb, but the movie that they were asked to be involved with was a little movie called Grease. Oh. Mm. So you're telling me that they could have been John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. I don't know if that would have been the exact casting. That would have been like you, incest. Kind of a exactly. But you could yeah. definitely for, see for Marie. Mormons, no way were they going to do that. <laughs> well, and maybe that's why they picked Going Coconuts. I don't know. But they could have done Grease. Instead, they did Going Coconuts. And that was right in the late set. You know, things were starting to go downhill. And it was just a bad decision. Then in 1981, NBC went to Marie Osmond and said, hey, you want your own show? I said, oh, yeah, okay, great. So they basically did the same show because Donnie would be a guest and they'd bring on the Osmond brothers to do something. But it only oh, lasted yeah. about seven episodes. And, yeah, it, it wasn't good. And, again, times were changing. Even though Marie was gorgeous at that point, still cute and still talented, still is talented. You know, it just didn't work. But then, Didn't she get her own talk show later then, too? Like one of the – like kind of like a daytime talk show at some point, like that, in the 90s or something? That's my next bullet point in the notes. She and Sorry. Donnie. No, no, no. It's perfect. Yeah. You're, you're smart. Oh, yeah, you, your memory is great. They had their own daytime talk show in the 90s, but that's when Marie was starting to put on a little bit of weight, if you remember. Yeah. You know, we all... Yeah. I, I don't criticize too heavy because, you know, we all no. have had a lot of miles of hard road here and there. And, well... You know, Balloon yeah, up, and like you know, that's why we celebrate Thanksgiving like we do. Well, she, um, she, well, as you remember, she had some, she had some mental problems. She, you oh, know, yeah. postpartum depression. I think she might have, you know, I don't know what the deal was. It might have been a suicide attempt. I don't know. Oh my God! Whoa! But as yeah. I was talking to our, our number one fan, who's a big Marie Osmond, big Osmond fan, uh, John Kuhn, I said, "Yeah, Marie had some problems." He said, "Listen, how many kids did she have?" And I said, I don't know, six, seven, what was that? He said, yeah, if you had six or seven kids, you'd go a little crazy too. And I said, yeah, you Hell know what, yeah. you're probably right. You're right, yeah, a lot crazy maybe. Love kids, but, you know, they, yeah. uh, it's a full-time job times six in that case. So, the, so so they did that daytime show. I think it was three seasons. It was popular. Then they went to Vegas. Donnie and Marie had their own show. The Osmond brothers went to Branson, Missouri, as I think you might know, and they had their own theater there. Very popular for many years. Did shows daily. A couple of years ago, because they're all getting older, a few of the Osmonds retired. 
So the Osmond Brothers Act is no more. A couple of the brothers still do tours and still do performances. Donnie still does some stuff. Marie still does some stuff. But uh, but they're kind of you know they're wrapping things up, is is, is so to speak. Who did he as, box you know, though? You skipped that. Oh, sorry. Yes, they did celebrity boxing. It was Donnie Osmond against oh, Danny. Ba- no, Danny Bonaduce. Yeah, yeah, right. And who won? It was Bonaduce won? Right. I think Osmond won because yeah, yeah, yeah. Bonaduce went out like like uh, gangbusters for the first couple of rounds. But, of course, Danny Bonaduce is a mistake. huge – well, he's a big smoker, so he had no yeah. legs. He had he had no win. Yeah. And I think Donny Osmond got him in the third round. It was either a draw or Donny won, but I'll put I that in the right, corrections. Yeah. Wasn't it in Chicago? Could have been. I don't know. I think I so, because I think I was actually thinking of going. Can you imagine if I would have attended that? I could have had that on my my resume for my entire life. Went to the Donnie Osmond, Danny Bonaducci boxing match, and I blew it. I blew it off. Oh, well. well I don't I think had they're going to do that again. I had tickets to see Sinatra in Champaign, Illinois in 1990, and I didn't go. Okay. Well. I know. But that's I more know. standard. I, the the boxing match is more of a freakish event. Like there was a lot of Sinatra concerts. I guarantee you that boxing match was a one off. That's the true. People that went there, you know, how many people can say they were there? How many people would admit that they were there? But anyway, um, well, I you believe know, it was in Chicago. Hey, listen. Uh, the only thing I can ask you is, did they serve alcohol and was the beer cold? So if the answer is <laughs> yeah. yes, you know what? <laughs> well, come on, for guys like us. Can you imagine we'd be like pigs in slop? They got cold beer, we're inside, and we're watching Donnie and Danny box. How much weirder can it get? That would be awesome. Great way to spend a couple hours. I agree. I would have flown up (laughs) for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, here's a question for you. When was the last time that you turned on a radio station and you heard a song by the Osmonds, even though they had about a half a dozen hits? Well, I don't recall, but if right. I had to guess, had to, I'm going to yeah. guess around about 1974. Well, Donnie had a hit in 1988. It was Soldier of Love, and I know that because at the time I was working in radio. But even then, the Osmonds were considered, and Donnie especially, because he was kind of the you know the poster boy of the Osmond, the, the, he was the heartthrob, so to speak, but they were considered radio poison. Because they had such a negative, you know, Ogden, Utah, white bread connotation. They were they were about as unhip as you could be. So to this they day... They might as well have been Pat Boone's actual children. You're exactly right. And when you think about Pat Boone, and of course they were on the Andy Williams show, and Perry mm-hmm. Como was popular in that time, throw the Osmonds in that same, you know, under that same net, and that's the type of... And granted, you and I like it because we like the classic stuff. We like the old stuff. But the Osmonds were not hip. And even now, radio stations that play the music from the 70s and 80s won't play them. And Rick Dees, Rick Dees is a DJ popular out in L.A. or was popular for a lot of years. Howard the Duck. No, not Howard the Duck. He was Disco Duck. Oh, that's right. Disco Duck. (laughs) (laughs) You're close. (laughs) Look at me. Yeah, say that you're exactly right. But Rick Dees says no. He says programmers will not put the Osmonds in the rotation because there's just that same negative feeling. Oh, the Osmonds, that's so that's so square, man. I'm hipper than the Osmonds, even well, though they not, had a lot of good songs. What about at Christmas time? That's the one time that the squares get their play. Like, you yeah. know, you get the Mitch Miller and the, uh, who, uh, what, what was the guy? The, Steve uh, Lawrence, uh, Edie what, Gourmet. What Ray, Ray Conniff singers. Bing Crosby, you know, he yeah. gets a lot of airtime around Christmas. Of course, well, Burl Ives. The, yeah. the estate of Burl Ives right now exists solely on Holly Jolly Christmas and Silver oh and Gold. God. Yeah, I wonder if they get anything from that. Because, that, I mean, the snowmen thing alone would make them billionaires almost if they actually had any meaningful. Every time he comes on and spins around with the umbrella, they get, uh, you know, $50. They're going to be, you know, sitting on a yacht in Key West. You know what? I think I did the research on this. 
I think the Burl Ives estate still gets money from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, that cartoon, that the, the Rankin and Bass cartoon. Yeah. I think they're the only, like, uh, who sang the song originally? Was it, um, we know this. Oh, Gene Autry. Gene Autry, thank you very much. But the only one, when you see Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, I went to be a dentist. A dentist? You know, those guys don't yeah. get anything. Hey, that's a good impression. Thank you, thank you. Um, but but the, the estate of Burl Ives somehow managed to, to get some contract signed. So to this day, when that airs, they cash a check. I'm 99% sure I'm right on that one. You go, Burl. <laughs> yeah. <I'm>, yeah even, <laughs> even those we found out. What was his reputation when he was a student at, East, at Eastern Illinois University? Well, he got thrown out of... <laughs> I, I'm told... I have to verify this. He was thrown out of Eastern Illinois University for peeping on uh, into the women's showers in the athletic facilities. Well, and in her autobiography, Barbara Eden talks about working with Burl Ives and talked about the fact that she spent the entire time of the production running away from Burl Ives. Wow. Well, so we don't get sued by the estate because it sounds like they're pretty savvy. I want to say that... The allegation that Burl Ives was thrown out of Eastern Illinois University for peeping into the women's showers is unsubstantiated and is merely an allegation. Just a rumor. One of those wild Internet rumors that were quite positive could never be true. Correct. (laughs) I'm standing in Burl's corner. I want that made clear to all members of the state. Well, of course. Listen, one of my favorite songs by Burl Ives. My dad used to do it. I'm sure you don't remember it. I think it's called... Oh, boy. Um, Well, I can sing it for you. It it goes like this. When I was a bachelor, I lived all alone, and I worked at the weaver's trade. The only, only thing I ever did that was wrong was to woo the fair young maid. Oh, I wooed her in the winter time and in the summer, too. And the only, only thing I ever did that was wrong was to keep her from the foggy, foggy dew. Hey, that was pretty good. Although, I must say, one of the weirdest sets of lyrics that I've heard on a song in a very well, long but, time. Perfect but for th- Burl Ives. But think about it. It goes back to, like, I think this is a public domain song, I think, and that's why I can sing it. I think it goes back to, you know, the 1920s. But it was this guy. Man, what is even a weaver? Well, that's a good point. So, yeah, it probably <laughs> goes back before the 20s. But as the song goes on, it, at the last lyric is, um, and now I'm a bachelor, and I live with my son, and we work at the weaver's trade. And then I forget the rest of it. Damn it. But basically, what happens is he woos the fair young maid. She gets pregnant. She dies. He takes in the son, and then they live their life out together, working at the weaver's trade. And every time he looks at the sun, he thinks of the wonderful girl that he wooed back in the day. It sounds like kind of like a setup for like courtship of Eddie's father or something like that. See, that like should that. have really been the theme to the courtship of <laughs> Eddie's father. And then the oh, Burl Ives estate would be able to... Yeah, well, and then, and then Burl Ives <laughs> would have been able to catch a second check. So there you go. Yeah. Wow. All right, we wow. really took some left turns on this one. I have no idea how to finish this up. Uh, do you have an impression? Well, let's go back to sure. Sesame Street. Yeah, yeah, give me an impression and finish this out with a, with a touchdown run. Hey, uh, hey, Bert, did you hear that podcast? I did, Ernie. Did you like it? Well, uh, yeah, you know, I actually learned something, Bert. What's that, Ernie? I learned that those guys are dumber than my rubber ducky. <laughs> All right, this is Jim back with the corrections, and this has to be a record. Only two corrections. Maybe I wasn't completely paying attention, but in my notes, I have the fact that Jim Henson was only 53 when he died, so Harry and I were both wrong. And Danny Bonaducci actually beat Donny Osmond in their boxing match. Believe it or not, that was way back in 1994. Now, Harry was right. It was in Chicago. And Jonathan Brandmeier, the very popular Chicago DJ, I think he was on WLUP at the time, or AM 1000, whatever station. But he was kind of the play-by-play man and the promoter, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Danny Bonaducci also worked at that same radio station at the time. That's it. That's the corrections. Let's enjoy the Dukes of Dixieland. We'll see you next time. <laughs>